Now, Scripture this morning is from Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll read <clears throat> verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, but thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May God add his rich blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Would you pray with me again, please? Our Father, once again, we come before you and ask for your mercy. We pray that you would be pleased to come and speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ high and lifted up and hear his voice. Know him, follow him, and offer ourselves to him promptly and sincerely. In spite of the inability and sin of the preacher, in Jesus' name, amen. What do you want me to do about it? Today we're back in the book of Hebrews. We were there most of last year. We recently taken about a month off and we have gone through the short prophecy of Joel, but now we're done with that. We'll get back to Hebrews, and today we begin the last chapter. Hebrews, as you know by now, is a deep book, but it is also a practical book. It has direct application. All along the way, he gives us deep doctrine, especially on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But then he brings it down to us and tells us the point is that since we have a high priest, we are to pray, to come boldly before the throne of grace. He goes into great details explaining the temple and sacrifices and rituals of the Old Testament, and how Jesus fulfills it all. But then he comes right back and tells us what we ought to do about it. Persevere. Press on. Don't turn back from following Jesus. Now, in this final chapter, he gets completely practical and very specific. So if we've been reading or studying the epistle to the Hebrews and wondering, what does this have to do with me? Or what do you want me to do about this information you have given me? As if it has not already been clear enough. Here at the end, he leaves us with no room for doubt. Now let's get 
to it and see what he wants us to do about it. First, in this passage, we see brotherly love. Look at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Simple enough. We're to have brotherly love. But what does it mean? He gives two concrete examples of brotherly love. And the first is hospitality to strangers. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, travel in the ancient world was far different than now. The so-called hospitality industry was nothing like it is now. Inns, motels tended to be sketchy. Christians were a minority held in disregard. They depended on Christians to accommodate them when they were traveling. Of course, things are different now. We don't tend to have travelers coming through town knocking on doors wanting a room for the night. If there are, they are probably the type that these strangers in verse 2 were trying to avoid at a local inn. But though times have changed, the truth of God has not. This is not the only place in Scripture that hospitality is commanded. I remember not long after I graduated from Appalachian State University, I visited a church that would become my adopted home church. That's the Cottle Creek Church in my native county, North Carolina. One of the reasons it became my home church, and I will always consider it my home church. I go up there once a year for the barbecue and they have a homecoming service every few years. I try to get there when I can and even when I go now, I don't recognize half the people there, but it's still my home church. But one of the reasons it became my home church was when I was a stranger there, they showed me hospitality. The very first Sunday that I visited, the pastor and his wife really set the pace and the atmosphere of the church in that regard. They were always feeding people in the manse. But hospitality, especially to strangers, is crucial to Christianity. Now he says here, uh, in showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained angels unaware. Of course, we know uh, in uh, scripture that uh, these uh, that angels uh, came and Abraham and his wife Sarah showed uh, them hospitality. We also know that angels uh, visited the home of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, the men of Sodom uh, would have uh, treated them very poorly. We'll say it that way. Uh, but Lot uh, did what he could, rightly or wrongly, to try to uh, take care of his angelic visitors. This has happened. Now, this passage is not saying, as some people tend to think it does, that uh, you may have angels uh, come to your home posing as visitors. It's not impossible that could happen, uh, but it's really telling us 
if you refuse hospitality, remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah when they mistreated the angel they thought were men. It's not telling us how we might treat an angel. It's telling us how we should treat a stranger. And the other way, the second way he defines brotherly love is remembering the persecuted. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He says remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated since you also are, excuse me, who are in prison and mistreated for their faith. He's talking about people here who are unjustly imprisoned for being Christians. The tendency is to back off when pressure comes. Look how many churches have folded in our day on the issue of marriage. One man, one woman in the Lord for life. First, the church compromised on allowing or at least condoning its children to marry unbelievers. Then it caved on that little bit about till death do us part. And now the most fundamental element of all, one man, one woman, has largely been abandoned. Why? Fear of persecution. So the author tells us, that when Christians are imprisoned or mistreated for their faith, we must stand with them, not run from them. Think about the Apostle Paul, his last letter, 2 Timothy. He's in prison. He's going to die, and everyone has abandoned him except Luke, the beloved physician, but he goes through one person after another in his suffering who has abandoned him. Brotherly love is not bailing out on your brothers and sisters in the Lord in the day of trouble. But both these cases, you notice, of brotherly love, entertaining strangers, and remembering those mistreated, persecuted in prison for their faith, these generally are not people you're likely to be close to socially. Certainly not the stranger passing through. It is easy in the church to have a circle that you like. Feel like we have so much love, brotherly love in that church because we have a lot of affinity in our circle. But how does a new person fit in? How does an outsider feel? Brotherly love is not feeling good about your social clique. It's about loving the whole body 
Christ. So he commands us to let brotherly love continue. Now secondly, in this passage, we see the sanctity of marriage. The sanctity of marriage. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Is there a verse in Scripture that is more opposed to the spirit of our time than this? God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The fact that it says there is such a thing as sexual immorality Never mind, God will judge it. Marriage is to be held in honor by all. If you read the decision the Supreme Court published in the Obergefell v. Hodges decision, which legalized same-sex marriage throughout the land about five years ago, you remember that Justice Kennedy, who wrote that opinion, wrote that the movement was driven by the high honor in which same-sex couples held the institution of marriage. But the fact is that the institution of marriage, as we already noted, is one man, one woman, in the Lord for life. If it is not one man, one woman, it is not marriage. You might remember 10 years or so before the Supreme Court ruled on that issue that there was the so-called Defense of Marriage Act pushed by conservative evangelicals that defined marriage as one man, one woman only. And a very prominent liberal politician whom I believe is a sincere evangelical Christian basically said he would support it if they added the words for life, exposing the hypocrisy of conservatives who want to pick and choose which of God's laws are negotiable. But marriage is to be held in honor among all people, all societies. You know, so-called straight people have been living in sin for centuries and openly in our society for over 50 years. When we tolerate these desecrations of marriage, we are dishonoring the genuine article. It's hard to tell a young person rife with raging hormones to wait. Well, it's not hard to tell them. They just won't listen. But the fact is, you're messing up your mind. You're messing up future relationships. It's the same with pornography. You know the old saying, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. It's inflicting a degree of mental illness on you. The image you're looking at, the person you're sleeping with outside the bond of marriage, it is literally driving you crazy. And the proof of it is 
that you know dang well it could cost you your family, your future, your children, and at least half of all your possessions, and you won't break it off. That is crazy. It may feel good for a while, but it's worse than idiotic. So you see, brotherly love, sanctity of marriage, and thirdly and finally in this passage, we see contentment. Contentment. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Last practical matter in this passage be content with what you have. My children have a little saying, a little rhyme. I think they got it from one of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. Says, hey ho, life is jolly, content is wisdom, complaint is folly. Content is wisdom, complaint is folly. I commend that little rhyme to you. You know, discontentment is sin. Said, be content with what you have. It's command. Think about these times in which we find ourselves. So much of what we're used to doing is now cut off. I remember reading a sermon of the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones on uh, contentment. And he talked about how prone the discontentment people are. And I remember he mentioned in that sermon that during the Battle of Britain, when the People, particularly in London, uh, had to black out, couldn't go out, or had to go down in the air raid shelters. That, uh, they talked about the boredom of the blackout. Okay? Even in the middle of a war, people were uh, getting bored and complaining about not being able to go out and do what they like. How can I be content? in any situation. What does he say? Why does he say we can be content? The Lord is with me. He has said, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a, a quote that is repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. God promised it to Jacob, to Moses. He promised it to Joshua when Joshua succeeded Moses. And through David, he promised it to Solomon. It was David who said, the great king, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
Do you see? The same God who was with all the greats of the Old Testament, the great leaders, the great liberators, the great patriarchs, the great kings. That same God is just as much with the lowest person in society who loves him. Hebrews 13, 5 applies a promise that is made to the great kings and rulers of God's people. His hand-picked, raised-up leaders of his people applies it to every single child of God in Jesus Christ. He is with every one of his people, and the Lord is enough in any situation. And since we have the Lord in any situation, we can be content in any situation. And how do we know that? The essence of true religion is God's promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what Bible And that promise is fulfilled in Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, God became one of us to be always with us, to go through what we go through and so much worse. He went through infinitely worse than he went through infinitely worse than we would ever go through. We deserve, every one of us deserves to be eternally forsaken of God. But here we have the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And it can only be because Jesus Christ said my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He alone was forsaken so that all who trust in him will never be forsaken. This is why we are to show brotherly love. The Lord is with us. This is why we don't go to the house of ill repute or the website of ill repute. The Lord is with us. I visited with a lady who was <clears throat> married over 60 years, Christian lady, had Christian marriage. She told me on many occasions she doesn't understand these young people. Marriage is breaking up. She said, I was married to my husband over 60 years. 
and that wasn't long enough. Now you have marriage like that. The Lord is in it. And this is how you and I can learn to be content in any circumstance. The Lord Jesus Christ is still Emmanuel, God with us. He was forsaken so that we would never be left. He is the good shepherd and the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. He is with me. And that, my friends, is what we're supposed to do with this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.